I want us to be honest for a second. When you step into a church, who do you immediately think is the most important person there? Now, if you're like me and you just want to be honest, it's human nature to think it's the guy up front, it's the guy preaching, or it's the person leading worship, or it's the most public figure in that room. And it's for good reason. There's a, a kind of glamour, there's a kind of prominence afforded to the person who's publicly out in front. And one of the difficulties with that is it can make it seem like because they're so public, because they're so prominent, they're also the most important member of the church, that they're the central cog and everybody else is expendable. And again, that's human nature. I think we all tend to feel that way and at least lean in that uh, direction. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians fights against that mentality. He doesn't deny that there are public figures. Paul himself is a public figure. He's publicly known as an apostle. And he doesn't denigrate the role of proper authority and even prominence. But he does say that all of it must be relativized and placed under the lordship of Christ. And it must be placed under the lordship of Christ in a particular way. That authority and leadership and prominence must always go through the lens of the cross, that Christ crucified is the foundation of the church, and there is no other foundation. And with Christ crucified as the foundation, it allows people with different gifts of varying levels of prominence to work together, to depend upon one another, and to esteem one another with an honor that, frankly, the world is not going to give. Maybe to put it more succinctly, the goal is not to elevate one gift over another or one person over another, but rather to use whatever gifts and prominence you have to elevate others, to raise others up, to empower them, and to help them follow Christ. This is Understanding First Corinthians. In the last episode, we looked at the opening two chapters of 1 Corinthians. And what we see is that Paul is dealing with some reports he's hearing from people in the church at Corinth about some struggles that they're having. The church is dividing up into different factions. Certain people are saying, I'm of Paul. Others are saying, I'm of Apollos. Other, others are saying, I'm of Cephas. And the really spiritual ones are saying that they're of Christ. And Paul rebukes them and says, you're dividing up the one Christ. And also you're using spirituality as a way to elevate yourself when the very person we're called to follow was Jesus Christ who gave up all esteem in the world and was uh, humiliated on the cross and died a shameful death on a cross. And it was through his humility and his weakness and his suffering that the power of the resurrection was made manifest. And so he's looking at these Corinthians who were uh, boasting of themselves and acting so high and spiritual and saying, do you guys realize the message of the gospel is completely opposed to everything you're doing? The more that you boast in your so-called maturity, the more childish and immature you reveal yourself to be. That's the irony of it. And that irony is what Paul begins with in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and continues on into chapter 4. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 3 all the way to the end of 1 Corinthians 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? The Apostle Paul begins chapter 3 with a little bit of sarcasm. He talks to the spiritual people, quote-unquote, the the mature guys, the guys who are saying, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos. You know, I'm by association with these important figures. I myself am an elite kind of Christian. And he kind of mocks them a little bit. And he says, well, look, you mature spiritual people. I can't even talk to you like spiritual people. In fact, I have to talk to you like your infants because your factionalism is childish. And he says that they're acting of the flesh. In other words, they're living according to their sinful desires and not according to Christ. And Paul condemns the mature, quote unquote, by their own elitist standards. You're busy comparing yourself to other people because you can speak in tongues or do prophecy or you have eloquent speech and wisdom. Well, in reality, by God's standards, you're a child, you're a baby, you're not nearly as far advanced as you think you are. In fact, the more that you try to show how advanced and spiritual you are, the more uh, immature you reveal yourself to be. And then Paul talks about two metaphors. He talks about the metaphor of a field and the metaphor of a building. So let's think about the metaphor of a field. Paul says that the church is God's field. The Corinthians, they are God's field. And all Paul and Apollos are, are fellow workers. That's it. Paul plants and Apollos waters. They're two distinct jobs, but they're all for the same purpose. So for that purpose, they're they're just, they're one, they're united. So why would you separate those two jobs? In fact, if you're just of the party of Paul, then you're just of a party of a planter. And if you're of, of the party of Apollos, you're just of a party of a waterer. But you need both. So it's kind of stupid that you guys are splitting off two people who need each other and whom God uses to accomplish his purposes. So you have diverse gifts, but a unified goal. And both of those people, though they are gifted, Paul and Apollos, are just underservants of Christ. They're just underservants of God. They're not the point. They have a derivative authority under God. So don't focus on them. Now, notice that there's still hierarchy and there's still authority. Paul is an apostle. He was directly commissioned by the risen Christ to lead and lay a foundation for the early church. That is, that's authority. That's hierarchy, right? But the difference is how Paul uses that authority. Hierarchy and authority are not evil, but they must begin with humility. And so Paul recognizes that he's just a steward for this field. The field, the, the, the glory of the field is not to go to the planter or the waterer, but to God because God's the one who grows it. And then he brings about the next illustration of a building. And Paul now switches roles. He says, I'm like a person who lays the cement and someone else built upon it. So I think he's talking about Apollos. You lay down the foundation and someone puts gold and silver and wood and hay and all these things on top of it. It's an interesting imagery that he uses. If you think about how someone builds a house, you have to lay the concrete, you have to lay the foundation, and every every uh, part of the house construction process makes way for the next part. And each next part requires the previous one to be set. 
right? So you can't build or you build a foundation so the next person can build on top of it. And the person who builds on top of it can't build it unless the foundation is set correctly. And Paul says, I planted Corinth and I planted the church and I, I set it on the foundation of Christ. Now other people are building on it. That's great. Good for them. This is not about me. It's not about Apollos. It's about the work of God building this building. And then he gives a warning and he talks to uh, leaders, essentially. And he's saying, look, if you are leading in any capacity, if you have authority in any capacity, be careful how you build. If you build things according to the world, if you build things that the world loves, on the day of judgment, God's going to burn it away. And only what is eternal and of true lasting value will survive. And he uses this uh, material analogy. I mean, he says that your work's going to be burnt up. Some of you, God is going to, with his purifying fire on the day of judgment, he's going to burn up your works and most of it's going to survive because it was you, you, you used your life well, you led well. But for other people, most of what they did is going to be burnt up except for a little piece and they're going to just get in, you know, uh, without being completely consumed. So, so it's not about salvation because he says the person who suffers loss, whose work is burnt up, they're still saved. So this is talking about the way that God uh, distributes rewards according to how we live in this world. And that is something that God does. You know, Jesus says that uh, the first in this world will be last in heaven and that the last will be first. In other words, there's still hierarchy in heaven. It's just flipped. So going back to wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God, the things that you build in this world that the world loves are going to be burnt up. But the things that the world despises, the things that Christ loves, are going to last forever. So in your kind of scorekeeping between you and other people, what criteria are you using? Are you using the criteria of the kingdom, of the things of eternal value? Or are you using the criteria of the world, which is passing away and will be purified and consumed by this fire? So this isn't some kind of uh, proof text for purgatory. I don't think that's this at all, right? I think this is speaking about how on, when Christ returns, he will divvy out rewards to those who have been faithful, and he will ensure that what is of eternal value will last, and what is of uh, what is vanity will be shown for what it is. And then Paul says that you have to remember this: you over you are of eternal value. Right, the church, the people in the church, you are of eternal value. Why? Because you are God's temple. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's a powerful thing to say. Because the temple, the Jewish temple, is still standing at the time that the book of Corinthians is written. The letter to the Corinthians uh, was given. Which means that they're looking at this massive structure and going, we're the temple? We're replacing that? Doesn't, doesn't make any sense. And Paul says, the Spirit dwells in the church. He dwells among you. Think about how that would affect the way that you worship if you really thought about that. That every Lord's Day you come in and God is dwelling there by his spirit. He is there. He is with you. He is calling you to worship. We're not gathering around and summoning God. God is summoning us and he is present. And man, if you have the spirit present with God's people, what more could you want? And Paul goes, why are you boasting in men? All things are yours. In verse uh, chapter 321, all things are yours. The best way to stop this foolish competition is to show that everybody has this abundance. That all the riches and glory of Christ are yours by his grace. So why are you squabbling over this stuff? Why, why are you trying to act as though, you know, uh, it's a zero-sum game? 
right? If someone else gains, you lose. It's foolishness. And Paul is trying to remind him, if you're in Christ, you have all the blessings of Christ given to you by faith. And then Paul applies this to his own life in chapter four. He says, look, I don't want you to build a cult of personality around me. I just want you to think of me as a faithful steward of the mysteries of Christ. The mysteries of Christ are simply Christ crucified, right? The the word of God, the teaching of God. I just want you to know me as a faithful servant, that I was trustworthy. And then he says, you know what? It's not even important what you think of me. It's not even important what I think of myself, right? And now I think he's talking about being judged for his work. You know, he's saying like, look, uh, the Lord is going to reveal the fruit of our labor. And he knows our hearts and he knows our motivations. So, I mean, you don't know my heart. And even if I know my own heart and I think I'm okay, I'm not acquitted by that. In other words, even if I look at myself and I go, no, I don't think I'm sinning or I'm harboring any sinful thoughts. That doesn't mean that you're off the hook. You still might be. And God knows the deepest motivations of your heart. And so Paul's like, it doesn't really matter what human courts think of me. It doesn't even matter what I think of me. All I care about is what the Lord thinks of me. Before the Lord, every man stands or falls. And this is not some kind of trite, like no one can judge me except God. It's him saying that is the most terrifying thing, that, that, that all the accountability in the world, all the opinions in the world don't matter unless you fear God, right? He says, fear God above all the opinions of men. So he's not using this as saying, well, I don't care what you say. I don't need to listen to you. I can be stubborn. No, he's saying that I fear God. Above all, that's all I care about. I just want to please God. So it's not a license to sin that he's saying no one can judge me, but rather it's an expression of his fear of God, knowing that God knows the deepest motivations of his heart even more than he does. Now, elsewhere, Paul says you should be excommunicating people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he's going to talk about, uh, uh, he's going to rebuke the, the Corinthians for not excommunicating a guy who's sleeping with his stepmom. So he's not saying that you shouldn't judge ever, but he is saying with regard to the work that we're doing, we're not going to know God's final stamp of approval until he returns. And so hold off on the judgment. Don't, Don't sit there going, Paul was the greatest, or these other people are greatest. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Just wait. The day of the Lord will disclose that. We don't need to pronounce a judgment before the proper time. So Paul applies it to himself and says, look, it's not about me. It's not about my own glory. It's just about being faithful to Christ. And and Christ is going to be the one who approves of it in the end. And, And really, that's all that matters. But he says this. He says, we're not trying to puff ourselves up, and you shouldn't either. And the way you're puffing yourself up is in verse six. He says that you're going beyond what is written and you are puffing up yourself in favor of one against another. You're you're breaking up into factions and comparing one another to each other. And you're not listening to scripture. You're going beyond what is written. And Paul goes, everything you have is a gift. So stop boasting in these things that God has freely given to you. Right? And then and then he kind of goes sarcastic again. He's like, you guys are kings already. You guys reign. You're so wise and powerful. And, and look at us. We're so weak and we're humiliated and we're we're on death row and, and we are the, the, the refuse of the world. We are the scum of the earth. Everyone looks down on us, but oh, they look up at you. They look up at you. And, it, and, and, and he compares their resumes and he says, which one looks more like Christ? The person who gains all the glory from the world? and is elevated, or the person who the world rejects and is humbled and humiliated and is weak, which one looks more like Christ? 
you're using the wrong set of criteria. And Paul says, look, if you're judging based on worldly values, then yeah, the apostles, we're dumb. We're fools, right? But we're fools for Christ's sake. And if you're judging by the values of the kingdom and the model of Jesus Christ, we're the strong ones. We're the righteous ones. We're on the right side of history here. So he kind of shows like you want to be on this victory parade, but we're on death row. And yet, and yet wasn't Christ on death row? And doesn't resurrection follow the cross? And here's this is what's important. Paul's not saying you shouldn't seek glory or you shouldn't seek vindication. He's saying you shouldn't seek it the way the world does, but rather you should seek it by humbling yourself before God and letting God exalt you. Now, Paul is authoritative with this. And he says to them, look, I'm not trying to shame you, right? He's not trying to like lay it on thick and make him feel terrible. He's saying, I'm coming to you like a father. I'm not trying to humiliate you. I'm trying to challenge you, right? When you shame somebody, it's for your gain to break them down. But when you challenge someone, it's for their gain to build them up and to challenge them to take them beyond what they're comfortable with and to, and to take them beyond what they can currently see. That's the essence of leadership. And Paul is not afraid to exercise that leadership. He's not domineering. He loves them, but he's fatherlike. He wants to be an example. He wants them to imitate him. And he comes to them with care and also a firmness and saying, you need to correct this. And I'm saying this because I care for you. So Paul has a spine. In fact, he even ends this by saying, do you want me to show up at Corinth with a rod? Because I'm sending this letter to you to kind of ease the tensions because I don't want to be this way with you. I, I don't want to come with discipline and power. I, I want you to receive this gentle letter so that you can deal with these issues so that when I show up, I can just enjoy my time with you. And so this shows that authority to be effective must have teeth. You got to have a backbone. You got to be okay with people not liking what you have to say. Sometimes people, when they get mad at leaders, they're just mad that the leader's actually leading right? And the whole point of leadership is that they're going to push you to do things beyond what you think you're capable of or beyond what you think you should be doing. And that's why leadership is so important because if they are of a poor moral character, they can really drive the whole project down the drain. But if they are of strong, righteous character, they can elevate people toward Christ and toward holiness. So not for a second does Paul say there should be no leaders you know, everything should just be like democratic and everybody decides by a group vote. No, no. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I have a rod of discipline that Christ has entrusted to me to use. And I will use it, but I don't enjoy that. And I don't want to do that. And if by any means possible, I can persuade you with gentleness in this letter, I would rather have that. So he has authority. It has teeth, but he doesn't lord it over the Corinthians. And it's not something that he is chomping at the bit to do. And I love how he sends Timothy. You know, he sends Timothy as his representative and says, man, imitate Timothy because Timothy imitates me and I imitate Christ. And, and that is the, the cornerstone of that fatherly authority that Paul has. He wants them to be like him. He wants them to walk like him because he walks like Christ. It's almost like Paul saying, if you want to gather around me, if you want to have some kind of, you know, quote unquote, cult of personality, then imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? If you're, if you're going to be so focused on me, at least use me as a way to understand and model or be a model for you to follow Christ. And that is the heart of a leader, somebody who says, it's not about me. I am leading you to follow the great shepherd. 
That is the goal. You are God's field. You are God's building. I am just a worker. And my great glory is seeing God glorified in you. 